All right, you may be seated this morning. We're going to have a Bible study as we're going to continue in our study of 1 Timothy. We've come to the third chapter, and we have come to verse 4 of the chapter of 1 Timothy. If you need a Bible, you're towards the back, just raise your hand. We'll slip you a Bible, and then we got some towards the front platform. But continuing our study in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you were with us in our study last time, we were looking at the qualifications of an overseer. And and the word is bishop or elder or pastor, as Paul talks about men who are ordained by God to lead the church. And it's not just any man that is called or appointed in the church to be an overseer. There are certain criteria and qualifications that the church is to look for in that man who desires the position of an overseer. And you may be thinking here that why would we want to go through this section of Scripture dealing with the qualifications of a bishop or, as I said, an elder, a pastor. And and these are three terms that are really uh, interchangeable terms. Uh, Why would we be spending so much time going through this section of of Timothy when most of us are, are not elders or desire to be elders? Men, you may be thinking, I don't desire to be an elder or to be an overseer of a church. But I want us to look at this because for a couple reasons. Number one is that it's important for you as a church and you belonging to the church to know what godly leadership looks like. So it's important for for Christians to know what the qualifications, what the character of an overseer or as we're going to move into and talk about the deacon, is to be. But then second of all, these are all qualities that that we can make very specific application when it comes to our own lives, as we desire to grow in the Lord, as we desire to mature in the Lord. And in any of us, as we look at this, uh, as children of God, we are to desire to have these qualities and these characteristics being worked out in our own lives. So, Father, I do pray that now as we go over and continue these characteristics, and these are character issues, and you're the one that qualifies an individual uh, for ministry, for leadership. But, Lord, there's something for all of us here to take home to apply in our lives. Yes, we're going to make specific application to the overseer, to the deacon, but also, Lord, for our own lives. So I pray that we would be teachable, just um, have hearts that are soft before you, uh, looking to you to guide us and direct us in, in every way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, man, you may not be a leader in the church or desire to be one or you're called to be one. But you are called to be a leader in your home. So husbands and fathers, you are the elder, the shepherd, you are the pastor, you are the priest in your home. And these are characteristics that you should have in your life or desire to have so you can minister more effectively in your home to your children, to your grandchildren. So this chapter is, uh, as we've been looking at in 1 Timothy, first of all, that men in chapter 2, if you're with us going through that, that portion, where Paul says that men are to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. That's a priority for the men. And the first mark of a leader in the church, in the home, because he was talking about the corporate meeting of believers, is a man who who prays, who's given over to prayer. And we can look at Scripture, and we can see that prayer is to be a priority for every single one of us who are believers. 
So I hope that as we're going through this pastoral epistle, that we understand that it gives us the big picture of qualities that all of us should desire and grow in. And so last week, as we began to look at chapter 3, the qualification of, of a bishop, first of all, that he who desires that, that it is a good work. It is work. Uh, that work is to be done in a way that, that we are to give our best to the Lord. We are to work for the Lord, be diligent in that work, and it is a good work. And any of us who desire to minister in any capacity Understand this, that it is a good thing. It is a wonderful work in serving the Lord, in serving his people, whatever it might be. And we can go down this list of qualities here as we began to see through verse 3 last time. And as we're going to continue here. And we, I hope, again understand that these are qualities that we should desire in our own lives. That we know will bless us and benefit us most definitely. To be blameless, as we saw, doesn't mean to be perfect or sinless, uh, because none of us are. But it means that no one can look at our lives and say, boy, you have a foul mouth or your behavior is unlike a Christian, but you're out partying, whatever. We want to be blameless. We, we want to be temperate. We want to be sober-minded. We want to be of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. And you may not be able to teach or feel comfortable in teaching maybe a Bible study or uh, youth or children's ministry, whatever. But you can teach those that are in your life, those who are linked to you, whatever state you might be in. Friends or maybe somebody at work or for you parents, your children, to give them the truth and the precepts and, and the wisdom of God as you know truth, as you grow in the word of God. And as we end at verse 3, which lists not given to wine, not violent, not greedy, gentle, not quarrelsome, uh, not covetous. These are characterizing the bishop, what should be worked out in his life as he oversees the church, the pastors of church. And so we want to continue looking at these criteria for leadership. A bishop must be, now verse 4 of 1 Timothy 3, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? I remember uh, I've been in full-time ministry for 27 years by the grace of God. And I remember early in my ministry, I went to a Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference and had the blessing of listening to Warren Worsby. Warren Worsby, a great Bible scholar. We have his commentaries in the bookstore. He was called the pastor to pastors. He's recently gone home to be with the Lord. And, and he said something that always sticked with me. And, and he said that as pastors, when he was speaking to us, that the greatest thing that I can do for my family is to have a strong church. And the greatest thing that I can do for my church is have a strong family. And Paul here says something that is absolutely critical if, if we desire to be leaders in the church, if we desire to be effective in ministering to others, and that is, he says, your home has got to be in order. And as we look at this, that a leader in the church is going to demonstrate his leadership ability first in his own home. Your family members, your wife, your kids, or first of all, your disciples. And I have learned that the validation of my ministry is not going to be the size of the church. It's not going to be how popular I am in the community. But according to scripture, the validity of my ministry is going to be with my family. 
Now, let me tell you what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that as an overseer, that we are to have a perfect family, that we are to have perfect children, because that will never happen. I think that the church sometimes can be put on unrealistic expectations on a pastor's children, on a pastor's wife. And it's unfortunate. And they end up resenting the church. And I know that as there have been some pastors, and I, I just want to be sensitive here, just as there's been godly parents that have raised their children in the ways of the Lord and brought discipline. And eventually, as those children get older, they're going to have to make their faith their own. They're going to have to make a decision for Jesus Christ. All four of my children are, are adults now. They're out of the home. And Sue and I did the best that we can in raising them in the ways of the Lord. We took that very serious. We prayed for them, made it a priority. Because as we prayed for them, we knew that as they get, got older, that the enemy was going to go after them. And so we continue to minister to them. We continue to be a godly influence in their lives. But they've had to come to the Lord, you know, and make that decision themselves, which they have. But that doesn't always happen. And there's going to be no one that will be able to stand before the Lord and say, well, I'm saved because my dad was a pastor. Or no one be able to say that I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians. They all have to come to faith on their own, make a decision for Jesus, and then their faith is going to be tested. So sometimes there are those parents that you've raised your children in the ways of the Lord, that you, you taught them the word of the Lord. You've disciplined them in the things of the Lord. And yet they've walked away from the Lord. And it's heartbreaking. And I know that as I look at this, there's the other side of the spectrum is this. That as an overseer, I'm not to neglect my family. And you see, it's real important that I see them as a priority in ministry. You see, I take ministering here very, very serious. And as we talked about last week, the pastoral staff here, that we're here for you seven days a week. We, we get one day off. We, we have different schedules. But... But I take very seriously being with you. You know, I, I, I know that a, a shepherd, a good shepherd, is with the sheep and available. And, and my conviction that the Lord has given me is that my priority is to minister to you guys here at Calvary Chapel Greeley. You see, I get invitations to go speak all the time. And I could be gone a lot. But the guys that say, hey, why don't you come down and do my Sunday services or come speak... A lot of times I say, you know, the problem is we work the same hours, you know, the same day. And, and I'm not against going and speaking somewhere else. But you guys, God has given me Calvary Chapel Greeley. And I want to keep that a priority. So that's why you don't see me gone a lot. And I don't want to neglect pastoring this church. So that's a conviction that the Lord has given to me. But I also don't want to neglect pastoring my own family. And you see, that can happen very easily. I've known guys that wanted to get in ministry, and they're like, oh, I got the calling of God, and I want to be a pastor, and I want to give the gospel. And I say, great, but I just got an email from your wife that says, you're gone every night, and you're not there. And she's left with the kids, and you have no time for them. And she's miserable, and she's asking for marriage counseling. Well, she needs to learn that it's a sacrifice and all of this. And I'm thinking, do you hear what you're saying? 
For those of us who are in ministry, we can't leave our families behind. We need to take them with us. And I pray that, Lord, I know I haven't done that perfectly, but I never wanted my family to think that everything else in the ministry was more important than them. As I said, you guys are important. They know that that ministry is important. But I didn't want them to resent the church because everybody else has priority. When I went home, I went home. And I ministered to them and spent time with them. I I wasn't traveling a lot when they're young. I don't travel a lot now. And I wanted to make sure that, that I didn't neglect them. That, that I had their, their love and support in what I was doing. And if anything ever came along that brought harm to them to where they thought the church isn't beneficial and my family's falling apart, then I wouldn't be able to do my ministry here. I'm very grateful that my kids have, have loved the church. They're here serving the church. And I have a wife, a beautiful wife, that has supported me for, for 30 years, you know, 27 years in ministry. And we need that support. And when I talk to young guys that, that want to be in ministry, I say, you know, I start talking to them. I say, well, what about your wife? What about, you know, your family? And, and sometimes they look at me kind of surprised. What do you mean? Why are you talking about my wife? Why are you talking about my family? Because they come along with you. And I've had guys that want to be in ministry and even tried to plant a church. I say, is your wife supporting you? No, but she'll come along. She really doesn't want to do this, and it ended up being disastrous. It ended up being a mess. So we need to take care of our families. We need to have our families come alongside of us in the support of our families. That is a priority, and I think that's what Paul's saying. Here's the kind of the unfortunate thing, and um, this is just my opinion, not that my opinion matters, but there are pastor's conferences all the time, and very, very seldom or very little time is ever talked about the pastor and his family. It's about how to minister to the church, how to get a bigger church, how to draw people in, how to, you know, preach powerfully, all these other things. But very little is ever spoken about how to take care of your family. And I remember I went to a workshop when the kids were young and, and Steve Mays, uh, amazing man who's gone home to be with the Lord, um, he, he did a workshop on ministering to your wife and kids. And I literally came out of there shaking, thinking, thank you, Lord, that I haven't blown my family up. When my kids called, the call went through. I didn't say, leave me alone. Don't you know that I'm a man of God and I'm in study right now and I don't have time for this, you know? That they knew there were times where I needed to go. They knew that dad needs to go. You know, he, he needs to go and work, and they appreciated that. But there, when I came home, again, I wasn't on the phone all the time. And it's worse now because we got these things. You guys know how it is. And we can constantly be on these things. And, you know, this is not only for me, but this is for you who have business and you who work. We can leave our families behind. And then when we get home, we're still at work. Because we're on this. Now, after service, if you came up and said, we want to introduce ourselves or we wanted to talk to you, and I'm sitting there going, "Uh uh-huh, well, well, and I'm not paying any attention, how would you think? You would walk away saying, that guy's rude. What's up with that guy? What do you think our kids are thinking when we do that constantly to them? 
When we're doing this at the dinner table, we're always on the phone, we're taking phone calls. My point is this, we need to be careful. Dads, take walks with your daughters, with your sons. Talk to them about the things of the Lord, how much the Lord means to you. You know, when they're, they're, they sin, talk to them about it, how it, it hurts a, a holy God, what they've done. Let them know you love them. Be there for them. And I know that there are those of us that are here, we have the blessing because of God's grace. As our children grow up, they come and they still can talk to us and we can minister to them and that's a blessing. And we will always be mom and dad, right? Grandparents to your grandchildren. And so we don't want to neglect our family. They have to be a priority. We don't want to leave them behind. Listen, people will come and go in the church. I tell young guys this for various reasons. And, and I see it as a privilege to be here every week. I never want to ever take that for granted, to be a part of your lives. But people come and go for various reasons. But I only have one family. I only have one family. So we need to make sure that we're taking care of them. In verse 6, not a novice, being, less being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So a novice um, is a new convert. When someone first becomes a believer, it's not a good idea to put them in leadership because they lack maturity. And the scriptures here says they can become prideful. When somebody's young in the Lord and they have success, then pride can come in. And pride's such a terrible sin because that's what caused Lucifer to fall and become Satan. I get uneasy when a famous person is saved and, and they're brought up front to speak at a church and, and they're a month old in the Lord. And that has really backfired on some ministries because they ended up falling back into the world or they say something that's totally unscriptural because they haven't had time to grow in the Word of God. And I think that we may have talked about this briefly last time, but sometimes a new believer, you know, they, they want to be a pastor, they're excited. I don't ever want to discourage a new believer in their excitement for the Lord or anyone who perhaps has the calling of the Lord, but they do need time to grow and to mature in the things of God. There needs to be that test of time to see if they're going to have these other characteristics that we've been talking about being worked out in their lives. So an elder is not to be a new convert, but has to have the chance to grow and mature in the things of the Lord. And then as we conclude this section, dealing with the qualifications of a bishop, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Verse 6, warning of falling into the same condemnation of the devil. Verse 7, the snare of the devil. Hear my heart on this. I hope I articulate this well enough. Um, to what you understand what I'm saying. Because again, I'm speaking from a lot of experience. You know, an overseer must have a good reputation. He must be known for being faithful in the things of the kingdom with ministry. You see, an elder or pastor having a good reputation, being mature, not a new convert. And Paul's thought here is that man who is a leader doesn't fall into reproach this narrative of a devil. You see, there's something here for all of us as a Christian. When you begin to grow in the Lord and your love for him and you're serving him in any capacity, you're desiring to live for the Lord. And many of you, you've come up to me, 
You know, you're learning the Word of God for the very first time. We're learning the Bible, and you're excited about that. And, and, and God is working in your life. He's working in your family. But we all know this, that the enemy is going to come against us. If you're growing in the Lord, if you're living for the Lord, if you're serving the Lord, the enemy is going to wage war against you. And as Paul charged Timothy in chapter 1, you need to wage a good warfare. It's a spiritual battle out there, Timothy. You need to fight the good fight of the Spirit. When anyone becomes a pastor or leader in the church, it is a joy, it is a blessing, it is a good work. But it oftentimes is very hard. It can be very tough. It can be very discouraging. It can be very heavy because you are dealing with some of the most difficult issues in people's lives. And as pastors going through that, in those times where you're just overwhelmed and you're wondering, Lord, what do I do in this situation? How do I minister to them? What decision should I make? When you're feeling down and discouraged, the enemy is going to point all the guns of hell at you. Whenever you put yourself on the front lines of ministering and serving God for anyone who's growing, this spiritual warfare is great. And the enemy will do anything that he can to destroy a man's ministry, to destroy his family. They try to get a foothold into the church. And a pastor is no exempt from that. The enemy Satan doesn't say, you know, Pastor Jeff, I think you're kind of a good guy. You've had a rough week. I'm going to leave you alone for a while. You know that when you're feeling overwhelmed and you're going through difficulties and you're going through loss, that's when he really likes to come at you. When you're weak and feeling down and discouraged and depressed, that's when he comes at you and me. And for those of us who are on the front lines of ministry, the enemy's thought is as he has a meeting with his spiritual wickedness in high places that that person has got to be taken out. And he will bring every kind of weird and demonic attack that he can muster up. So please pray for me. Pray for the leadership here because it's getting worse. It's getting darker out there. It's getting more evil and more messy out there. And culture and society is coming against the church more and more. And it may get worse as we get closer to the return of the Lord. So if a pastor, my point is this, a bishop and elder is not vigilant, sober-minded, mature, praying, seeking the Lord in the word, constantly and consistently. Timothy, we will see next week. Timothy, listen, we need to strive together, Paul's going to say, a continual working together. And, and you need to give yourself entirely to teaching to reading, to doctrine. You need to continue in these things. Take heed to yourself. Take care of yourself spiritually. And if a man of God who's pastor in a church, if he's not careful, he starts to get comfortable. He starts to get sloppy. He gets undisciplined. He's not humble before the Lord. He, he stops having devotion. He gets complacent. Those are all the tricks of the enemy. Peter, after he writes to overseers, he says, listen, be careful, be careful, be sober, vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
in any of us, and, and for me as a pastor, if I am not humble before the Lord and being vigilant and watching out, he's looking for any opportunity to ensnare, to pounce, and to rip you and me apart. And unfortunately, there have been many pastors that have fallen into sin. They fall into adultery, immorality. They steal money from the church. They begin to teach false and weird doctrine. All these things we read and how they fall. And here's the thing, that a pastor falls into sin, particularly when it comes to an issue of immorality, adultery. Yes, there is forgiveness. And please, I don't want to ever give the implication that there is no forgiveness. I don't want to give the implication there can never be any restoration, but it has to be done in patience with great accountability, and it has to be done in great humility. But we know that any of us sin, and the pastor that sins, it affects their family, it affects the congregation, and it affects the community. And what's the response of those on the outside Paul's writing about here? 2 Samuel chapter 12, when David had sinned, he hid it for nine months, ten months. Nathan comes to him, confronts him on his sin. And after Nathan looked at David and said, you're the man, David, you're the one that has sinned. You sinned as you committed adultery and murder. And David, he says, I have sinned. And then as he was forgiven, the Lord forgives you, David. But the Lord began to speak to David through Nathan. That David, didn't I bring you out of the sheepfold? Didn't I give you the kingdom? Didn't I save you from Saul? Didn't I put you on the throne? Didn't I defeat your enemies around you? Haven't I blessed the kingdom here? And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. And David, because you have done this thing, you have caused the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. And I know that broke the heart of David because he was a man after God's own heart. And I have known those in ministry that have fallen into sin, immorality, and they were known in that community. And it causes those who are skeptics and doubters and those who hate the church to have the cause to say, he claimed to be a man of God. What a fake and this Christianity thing is a bunch of bunk, and it ends up becoming very messy. And it becomes unfortunate, the testimony. Listen, they won't be able to use that as an excuse not to come to the Lord when they stand before God. And as I said, there is forgiveness. And anyone who is overtaken in a trespass, they will restore such a one in spirit of gentleness. But I'm going to be real honest with you. If an elder falls into sin, such as immorality, and then tries to be restored into that ministry too quickly or not in a way that there's patience and great discernment and accountability that is there, there's going to be a problem because they lost their good standing. They lost their trust with the people. They've lost their trust and a good standing, not only in the church, but those in the community. So Paul says, listen, you must have a good testimony. Keep that. Remember that. Another point I'd like to make, and, and again, when it comes to this list of qualifications, having a good testimony, it doesn't mean that a good pastor won't have those who will come against him. He will have his critics. 
Someone doesn't like the decision that they've made, that the Lord has put on their heart in the direction that they need to go as a church. Maybe they don't like the fact that they're teaching the Word of God in faithfulness. All kinds of things that a pastor can be criticized for and attacked by others. There is not a godly pastor that I know that doesn't face that. I mean, Jesus had his critics. And listen, I'm not trying to compare me or any other pastor to Jesus, but if you are serving God faithfully and wholeheartedly, you will have those who will come and find fault and criticize. It happened to Paul. He mentions it in the scriptures. Plenty of people came against him. But I want to say this, that there have been those, again, that, that I've known, that all of a sudden they bring rebellion in the church, they want to divide. They, they want to, to split the church. I, I don't like the pastor, so I, I'm going to take over. And the spirit of rebellion. And I've had even those who have called up and said, I don't like what the pastor's doing. And, and there's a group of us, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And I say, don't go that direction. Don't have that spirit of rebellion or being divisive because God hates it. Somebody who divides the brethren. Remember in Romans chapter 16, the last exhortation that he gave to them is mark those who bring division. But they're going to do it because I'm going to have this ministry and I'm going to take charge. Absalom tried to usurp the throne away from David. And it did not end up good for Absalom. It was Korah and Dathan and Abram and 250 leaders of the children of Israel. As you go into Numbers chapter 16, they come to Moses and Aaron and they said, Hey, Moses, Aaron, you take too much upon yourself. Well, we're special too. And they challenged them in their ministry, particularly with Aaron when it comes to the high priestly office. Because in chapter 17, you see how God showed them that I've called Aaron to be the high priest. Not you, Korah. You have a ministry. But what they were saying, and Korah was saying, who's leading this group, is I should be the high priest. I should take over. I should go behind the veil on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the blood. What makes you so special, Aaron? Well, what happened was, is the Lord opened up the earth and swallowed all those guys up that came against Moses and Aaron. And I tell people that i got to have this ministry. I'm going to take it by force and fleshly means, and we're going to split the church and all of this. I tell them you're going to get swallowed up. You may not get swallowed up literally, but your ministry and your joy and your peace, it's all going to get swallowed up. And the Lord will not bless it. You know, David, when he had a chance to do Saul in, he said, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. He knew that the Lord would put him in that position if he was anointed king. He put Saul in the position. He'll take Saul out when he's ready. And then I'll come to the throne. But David respected that. Saul, his life ended tragedy, in tragedy, tragically, because he had that spirit of jealousy and rebellion and anger against David. And I've seen guys try to take over a church, a ministry in that way. No submission, no humility, just in rebellion or whatever, and it's messy. So these are the qualifications of an elder or bishop. Verse 8, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. So deacons are those involved not so much in overseeing, teaching, or pastoring, but deacons are ones that are involved in practical service, intending of physical needs. We see Acts chapter 6, the early church 
appointed deacons to serve tables to meet that particular physical needs of helping feed the widows. The word deacon literally means a humble servant. Now, when David was getting things organized for Solomon to build the temple, he's getting the priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, all those ready uh, in, in order. And in First Chronicles, it says that the Levites did all manner of service. They were there to assist the priests. They didn't do the work of the priests. They assisted the priests. So the Levites of the Old Testament remind me so much of the deacons of the New Testament. The deacons are there. They are there to, to serve, to assist the elder. So the elder, his priority is given to prayer and the study of the Word of God. Now, sometimes a church or Christians can look at these two positions or office, elder, deacon, and think that the office of the elder is more prestigious than the office of a deacon. The elder, you know, overseer given to the study of word prayer, overseeing the ministry. Well, that's, you know, more important than serving practically. And we're more important. And we should never look at ministry in that way. It's not about position, it's not about titles, it's not about status, it's about calling, what God has called you to do. He hasn't called everyone to be an elder. Not everyone is going to be an overseer. But whatever God has called you to do, that calling is important. And maybe you're here and your focus is on raising your children. Maybe taking care of family members, elderly parents or grandparents. Your focus is you're working really hard, guys, to provide for your family. You're ministering, you know, in the community. You're ministering inside these four walls. Whatever God has called you to do, that ministry is very important. And it's just as important as anybody else's ministry. And it's a matter of calling. So I like what Pastor Chuck used to say, and he, he wrote this in his book, Calvary Distinctives, that, you know, uh, everyone should desire to be a deacon, that is one just serving in practical ways, meeting the needs of, of the body of Christ and the church and the facility that God has given to us. So whether or not you hold that office of a deacon in the church, these qualities listed here are things that God desires from any Christian that would want to serve him. So Paul writes, likewise, deacons must be reverent, that is, showing proper respect towards God and men, not double-tongued, that is, they are sincere, they are honest and unhypocritical. A lot of these characteristics are similar to the elder. A deacon is not given to much wine. We talked about that last time. An elder is not to be given to wine. A deacon is not to be greedy for money. How important that is today with the prosperity you know, movement that is out there. Uh, verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. is talking about a man who has spiritual maturity and depth. Those who can adhere to proper doctrine out of sincere conviction. Verse 10, but let those also first be tested. Here's the thing about anyone who's in leadership or in ministry um, as, as, and anyone who's called to be an overseer. The church is only going to confirm what God is working in their lives. We look at a man, you know, somebody in a position of leadership. We see God is working through them. We just confirm it. God does the calling, and then he does the training. He does the qualifying. He, he enables a person. 
Sometimes the church kind of gets it backwards. We're going to do all the training, and then, you know, um, and then they will hire that person for that position. I'm not saying that's all bad, the training and all that, but we like to see how God is working in an individual. We like to confirm what he is doing in them. If we bring them on staff or leadership position or as, as an elder, and then we're going to continue to encourage them and train them and help them and help them to grow. But it's only confirming what God is doing in their lives. We, we know that God has a calling on their life. But let those also, verse 10 says, first be tested. Let them serve as deacons being found blameless. So deacons are blameless, like we talked about with the elders. They have conduct that is Christ-like. Verse 11, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Verse 11 here is an interesting verse. Paul talks about deacons' wives. He doesn't do that with the elders. Now, there are Bible teachers, good ones, scholars and commentators that suggest that Paul's referring to not just the wives of deacons, but he's referring here to female deacons. Now, as we look at the qualification, it says the husband of one wife. And there are those in the church that are very adamant, as you look at Acts chapter 6, that those who were Danish deacons, they were men. But there are also others... And I believe you can make the case in Scripture for female deacons. And the reason is, is because in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, that we went over that not long ago, that Phoebe, that she is mentioned by Paul, a female who is the servant of the Lord. She's the one that carried the book of Romans from Corinth to, to Rome. What an incredible responsibility. She is a deaconess of the Lord. That word deaconess is there. He would agree other women, that he very much appreciate their ministry and their service. They labor for the Lord. They're servants of the Lord, the deaconess. So there are those who say you can make the case for the deaconess. There's even early church references that the women deacon, the deaconess, would minister to the widows and take care of the sick, and they would do very practical things. I just want to say this once again, that the, we have a number of women here that serve in very practical ways, and I am very grateful for their ministry. I'm very thankful for them. I could not do what I do unless they are ministering in those ways and serving and in different ways, and, and what a tremendous blessing, and you are appreciated, and your ministry is valuable. So the deacons meet the needs that that the elder wasn't that they weren't willing to or can't. I can't do everything here. And my priority is to be in the study of the word. My priority is to be praying. It doesn't mean I won't do those things, but because of the ministry of those who are serving practically, and that includes women, that I'm able to, to do what God's called me to do and focus on that. So let deacons, verse 12, be the husband of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For those who serve well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So serving in practical ways it may not be seen by men, but the Lord sees it. Will you remember this as you're living for the Lord, wherever the Lord has placed you right now? And as you're, you know, serving him and living for him and the opportunities given to you, and sometimes when you are, you know, raising your children in the ways of the Lord, and you got piles of, you know, laundry, and maybe, you know, you, 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 you're serving the Lord and taking care of other family members, or maybe you're discipling somebody, or you're serving here or out in the community, 
Others may not see it, but the Lord sees it. Will you remember that? And he's going to reward you. He's going to reward you in heaven. And Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Listen, your labor is not in vain, what you do for the Lord. We don't think about who comes in and cleans the church or who swept the sidewalks and who gets all the you know, stuff ready to go and chairs set up. We kind of have a, a little joke here that this is like the mini Pepsi Center here because we always got stuff going on, tables being torn down and chairs being set up and church being cleaned and, and all kinds of things because we use this facility all week long. What a blessing to have those who help. We don't always think about it. Who fixes the furnaces and who repairs, you know, things and, and who goes to the store and, you know, who buys the toilet paper, things like that. We don't think about it. But it is done. And the Lord sees all those little details. And whoever gives a cup of water to a child receives a, a, a great reward is what Jesus would say. So your labor is not in vain. And then as we finish here, as he says that you have a good standing with the Lord as you serve him. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. And so, Timothy, I hope to come to you shortly to see you. But if I get delayed, I'm writing these things to you so you know how to run things and organize things in the church. And in the first three chapters, Paul has instructed Timothy in how the church should function and operate. Make sure that you deal with strange doctrine. Make sure that you wage the good warfare. That's chapter one. Make sure that the church prays and know what the role of women and men are in the corporate meeting of the church. That's chapter two. And here are the qualifications for appointing elders and deacons. Chapter three. And Paul's going to continue to write to Timothy how you are to minister in this church and how you are to conduct yourself. Remember, this is the house of the living God. The pillar and ground of truth. This is God's church. This is not Pastor Jeff's church. This is God's church. Sue and I were talking last night after the ladies' conference, and, and we were talking about it was this time 24 years ago that we were praying about coming up and starting Calvary Chapel in Greeley here. And the Lord would lead us to do that. 24 years ago, there was no Calvary Chapel Greeley. It wasn't in existence. And look what the Lord has done. The church that he's raised up. The ministry that takes place. This is his church. And this church is not about a name. It's not about, you know, trying to be popular or the happening place. It is about his purposes to bring glory to him. To bring truth in the gospel. It's about serving Jesus Christ. And a body of believers that are ministering to each other and loving each other. Because we are a light and a pillar of truth. And it is very special what God is doing here. And we never want to take that for granted. And we are here for such a time as this, folks. In this community. Because it is getting weirder and more messy and people are hurting out there. And this is a place for them to come to hear the gospel and know that God loves them and is calling them to repent and turn to him and receive salvation. That he, Jesus Christ, even as I began the service, as David wrote, 
Our hope is in him alone. Because there is no other hope. This world is not our hope. And people are hurting. And they need to hear the truth. And what is the truth? Well, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this chapter. And, and Lord, uh, I pray that it's been beneficial for all of us. Lord, we, we do. We, we fall short in, in being the men and women that you want us to be. And, and, but, Lord, we want to continue moving forward. We want to be Christ-like. We know it's a work that only you can do. It's not a work that we can muster up ourselves. To be humble before you. To know your word. To be dependent upon you, Lord, in every way. Lord, we need you. And we need you as a church. This is the pillar of truth, of faith. It's not about a name for ourselves or exalting ourselves. It's about exalting Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Father, use us in these days to reach a lost and dying world. I do pray if there's anyone here, if you're here this morning, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're one that, well, my parents are Christians. I guess that makes me a Christian. No, it doesn't. You have to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you just came and you thought, God can never forgive me. Jesus died for all manner of sin. He died for all of your sins. He loves you. And salvation comes by you realizing your need for Jesus to be forgiven. He's the only one that died for you. No one else did. He hung on that cross. All of your sins were placed upon him. He shed his blood for the atonement of sin. And then he cried out, it is finished. He was put into a tomb and he rose again. He conquered sin and death. He proved and validated that he died for your sins, that he's the son of God. Will you give your life to him? He is the way, the truth, the life and no one comes to the Father except through Him. He is your salvation and all He asks is for your heart, for you to turn direction, repent and call upon Him. He loves you. He wants to save you and forgive you, bring you to the family of God, have a new beginning. You have right relationship with the Father where you can cry out with that spirit of adoption, Abba, Father. Will you come? Today's the day of salvation. If that means anyone to anyone listening right now. And you can pray that, Jesus, I come to you and I ask for you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. You rose again. You're alive. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me. And I thank you for hearing my prayer and bringing me into the family of God for this new beginning. And I want to know you and walk with you. Lord, thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, anybody, I want you to come up. There's a ministry team up front here that's going to be available and minister to you and encourage you. And Father, I pray for all of us that as we leave this place, that you would just continue to work in us that we can have godly characteristics and qualities working through us, a work of the Spirit. 
So Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your incredible love and patience and working in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? And we are here to pray with you. If you have any prayer needs, we want to pray for you.